Welcome back to episode 26 of the Service Design Podcast. This episode is going to be another Arena Live edition, as we organized one on the topic of education recently. I gave a talk myself together with Mark Willems, and we also heard an interesting story from Rebecca Gredner. And we decided to share the entire talks with you this time. And at the end, you'll be able to hear our roundtable discussion in which we have an in-depth discussion on education and what service design can mean. Enjoy the episode. arena so for example we had a blockchain arena we had a, a robotics AI arena but this year we're gonna do it a little bit differently so we will explore more broader teams and we will connect them to service design thinking and today is the first one so what do we have today for you I hope you all enjoyed uh, the food and you also walked around on the marketplace and already discovered some projects who were combining service design thinking and education in practice and at eight, so that's now, we will have our first uh, two speakers, which are Mark and David, who will talk to you about a project they did for students of GEO and teachers of GEO, where they together implemented a full service design process to come up with a project which they will show in more detail. And now we also have Rebecca Grotner here, who is a teacher in New York and who also uh, works for the Institute of Play. And they guide teachers in implementing service design thinking in the classroom. And then at nine o'clock, we will have debate together with the speakers. We will also give you the opportunity to ask some questions. So think about it during the talks. If there's something you want to ask, that's the time to do it. And then afterwards, we still have some uh, time for networking so you can still connect with some people. I'm not sure if some of you recognize this, probably not, when you were alive, but this is actually a post office a hundred years ago. And this is one today. And as you might see, it's quite uh, different. Uh, here you don't see any people, or at least I discovered one there, a very small uh, person in the middle of all the machines. And what you see here is even though there's not a lot of people working in the post office, of course, there, there have been a lot of people who designed the machines, who maintain the machines, who make the machines smarter. But that also means that our jobs are changing really dramatically and that we also have to teach students, children, but also people who are already older and constantly have to learn more stuff about uh, our world, which is evolving. And that's why we think service design thinking would be able to play a big role in this process. So if we look at the uh, skills that we would see that people in their future jobs would need, we would think about collaboration, so working together with different partners, people with different expertise, but also being very flexible because our jobs are changing. People used to work for their whole uh, career in one in one company, but that's uh, changing dramatically. And even within uh, companies, your uh, function will change very soon. So you will have to stay up to date with the new things that are coming up. Also, creativity, we believe, is a very important aspect in our future jobs. We have to keep on coming up with new, new ideas and new uh, things we can implement. 
The same as uh, the ability to learn. So we should really learn how to learn and how to learn in our uh, whole life. So not just as a child. And value searching. So where can we add value and which stuff can we improve? If we then look at the service design thinking characteristics, uh, one of the basic characteristics of service design thinking is that it's human-centered. So we really focus on, on people and we always try to make solutions that fit for people together with people. So it's really, the whole process is human-centered. Also here, it's collaborative. It's very important to work together with a lot of different stakeholders who have knowledge in different fields and together come up with the best solution as possible. It's iterative, so what does it mean? It means that we implement small parts and always keep on improving, so we do user research and we improve our products, or prototypes along the way. And we feel that that is something that we're gonna have to do in the future as well, because things will change more and more quickly. It's real, so what we mean by this is that it's based on user needs and it's based on researched user needs, so we have to know what people need to be able to, uh, to design something which people really want to use and uh, will use for a long time. And it's holistic. We cannot, in this complex world, design one small part of a process, but we have to take into account the whole uh, system that uh, is, part, is part of this process. And that means that it's also asking for some quite complex uh, processes to manage. And this is also really a skill that we use in, uh, in service design thinking. So if we place them next to each other, I see at least a lot of things they have uh, in common, even some things are exactly the same, whereas other things like creativity uh, is in both uh, topics is very, very important, also the human aspect. So that's why we actually organized this evening. We want to, together with you, look like what these two have in common and more specifically what uh, they can learn from each other. I hope you already saw some nice projects on the marketplace, but we will have two uh, speakers who will guide you through this a little bit more into detail tonight. So the question is how can the service design thinking methodology assist in education to deal with future challenges and inspire people to solve problems in a creative way? That's what we would like to talk about uh, today. And the first uh, speakers I would like to welcome to the stage are Mark Wilms and David Morgan. And they will show you a project which they did together with teachers and with students. They implemented the service design thinking process in co-creation with all these stakeholders. And they came up with a product that they will talk about uh, more tonight. So please welcome uh, to the Thank you, Stina. Thank you all for being here. It's really great that uh, we have the opportunity together, Mark and I, to talk about the project we did together. How was the food? You enjoyed the food? I enjoyed it. <laughs> I uh, grew up in the Netherlands, so uh, the peanut sauce at the start really uh, was a success for me. I'd like to uh, just briefly introduce ourselves before we get going into the project. So as Stina said, we want to talk about this project we did together, and there's so much we want to tell about. Um, so we're going to do our best to bring you the highlights, the most important parts of uh, what we think uh, we want to share in this project. So I'm David Morgan. 
I uh, worked as a service designer at uh, Nightmoves. Um, recently, I've taken on a new role as well within the Leap Forward group as a strategic designer. Uh, but service design principles will uh, always remain very uh, important to me. So I also have a background in teaching. Uh, I uh, worked as a teacher at the Eindhoven University of Technology, and that's a place where I had my first, yeah, real first-hand experience with uh, innovative education. And uh, this was an, uh, a, a university where they work with uh, competency-based learning and project-based learning. So students would spend a whole semester on one project, and they would have to develop a certain set of competencies. And I would evaluate them at the end of each semester in how well they developed and also how broadly they developed. So for instance, a student that kept doing programming every semester, that's not a good thing. He would become not, yeah, he wouldn't manage to get his full broad set of competencies. So that was really inspiring, I thought, to work there. Also to see how motivating this education was for the students and to see how each student came out with a completely unique profile. Um, but it was also hard work at the end of each semester. Uh, evaluating these students, uh, that was a two-week process just for eight students. So yeah, there was, uh, I've always felt there's a lot to improve there. Okay, I'm Mark, the boy with the vintage haircuts over there. Uh, holding the wire. I was an imaginary kid. I loved uh, building things in my fantasy. I had great fun, great fun but uh, school was a real struggle for me. Actually, it was really after school that I enjoyed learning for the first time. Um, so that was something I struggled with. And after my school time, I did uh, uh, higher education, uh, finally uh, ending with a master degree in education. And I was determined at the time that I really want to do something about education because education wasn't really wired for me. I had dyslexia. It wasn't, a it wasn't an available condition at the time, but uh, there was a, it was hard to, uh, to cope with that. So education should be wired for all kinds of abilities, as I like to call it, because there's a great advantage in dyslexia. I wouldn't be doing this job if I wasn't dyslexic. So, yeah, I work for GEO. GEO is the public body of education. We have about 1,000 institutions, 300,000 pupils, 32,000 uh, professionals working in GEO in different schools. They are organized in 26 school groups. It's a network. It's a big network which has a lot of opportunity in which are uh, a lot of initiatives which we can uh, make stronger if we can collaborate with them. So that's an uh, important thing. My job is innovation in ICT integration. And yeah, next is uh, let's, uh, let's see what uh, education is like uh, today. Besides the color of the second picture, there isn't too much change in education. We are still doing a lot of push. There are great initiatives, uh, but it needs to scale up. Um, next. This is how young pe uh, people like to learn, uh, pull learning as I'd like to call it, and this is more a uh, way where you are drive education through designing a learning experience around the learner, uh, where you design a learning experience through questions. So you could say pull is a curriculum of questions that pops up in a learner or in an environment. It's necessary that we do more pull learning because we see a lot of 
young kids choosing alternatives. This is just one number. 15% uh, growth in uh, students that chose for the Central Examination Commission. These are students that really have no social aspect in learning anymore because they can do it all at home. They learn at home and they, they do their exams. So I think we have a role to play here and make learning uh, social again and um, make pull learning and push learning possible to combine both. So GEO started two and a half years ago with a project called GEO 3.0, which is like a program in which we want to research what digital transformation could offer to the learning process. How can it connect to innovative schools? Because innovative schools also have a, have a big struggle. Yeah, sorry, my English, I just got it. Uh, my English is from TV. Uh, I never had a single lesson of English, so I'm going to blunder a lot tonight. Uh, innovative schools uh, run against the boundaries of learning platforms. And they compromise what they want to do because it does, it's not supported. So we are trying to build more like a Lego block of a tool that you can connect to uh, classical approaches. So both things, again, and that's my story really for tonight, can be combined more. Uh, we want to do this because we need transformation in education. We need to go further than single initiatives. We need to be able to connect it because then we can transform education. There's, of course, also the exponential changes in, in our society. Stina already covered that, so I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, but that's why we need more unique profiles, as David uh, uh, said. Uh, unique profiles with a unique curriculum versus the standardized way we organize education today. But that needs something to adapt uh, to, some, adapt to a system that can make an architecture that can make that possible. So our main design challenge is how can we support these innovative school contexts so they can leverage transformation. Okay, a wicked problem, so you need kind of a backbone to start with this. And first, I want to talk a little about three main aspects here. That's a vision on learning uh, we created before we start, uh, an approach in teams so we can go step by step, and of course we needed a good methodology, uh, service design thinking, to tackle this in co-creation. So zooming into uh, the vision on learning, I discovered in my first months, it was always the duality between innovative schools and uh, classical schools. And I want to put some emphasis on the complementarity between the both approaches. In push learning, you need to explicit your knowledge, you have your structure, you have some abstraction. That's, that are good things. We don't want to lose them. In, in pool learning or project learning, it's more meaningful, 21st century skills uh, orienting. So you see these are complementary. The plus here in this slide is very important to create ownership for the learner. You need a broad didactical approach. If we are going to change oil to push, there's some really, uh, to pull, there's some really push-minded students you are going to lose. Yeah? So you need to make the plus between the two and to connect a learning plan or a curriculum uh, to uh, questions that are used in uh, projects. And then you can create more ownership. Uh, okay. So the teams we, searching for words, inventarizeren, 
inventorized. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, no coffee cooker for you. <laughs> These are the teams. Uh, anyway, uh, we worked with, but David is going to explain them uh, from the push approach, and I will explain the two pull teams later on. Uh, but we took it step by step. And we decided to start with push because it's important that we build a basic infrastructure on what we know. And pull is still too much uh, scattered and unknown. And this will create a good support also for management, uh, for school managers to go and work with this project. And there are very innovative, innovative push school contexts. And so we started with three design tracks using service design because Service design is for us the methodology we can create this kind of innovation with. We build innovation together. And the pieces are put in there by all the schools. We built this in the vision. This is the socket. That's the vision. And now we can start building together. So then we came across night moves. And David's going to take it from here. OK. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the three push themes that we focused on. For each of these themes, we chose a particular school that really worked very much around that theme and started a very specific approach to coming up with solutions for each of these contexts. So the first school we went to was the Technico College in in Aalst, where we looked at co-evaluation. Sorry, goal-based co-evaluation, and this is a school where the students work part-time. So they have a half-time job, and half of the time they are in school learning some of general subjects, but also specific to their job. And this is a goal-based school, so the students have a whole list of goals that they need to achieve before they get their diploma. But the order in which they achieve these goals, that's up to them. So we started out doing a, a lot of um, work together with the students and focus groups, uh, specifically with students, also with the teachers. And what was interesting, who do you think had the most uh, productive uh, workshops? The ones with the students or with the teachers? <laughs> so, of course, I mean this was the, the students. So it was a real big uh, contrast where the focus groups uh, with the teachers, there was a lot of chatting, a lot of uh, laughing and uh, not taking things serious, whereas That's with the students, <laughs> yeah, they were having their nice food while we were working and uh, <laughs> it was a bit of a, a holiday for them, I think. Um, but with the students, that was really cool to see. They were really serious, they really brought fresh ideas and uh, it was great to work with them. So what we see here is a very concrete uh, tool that they work with. So this is an Excel sheet that each student has, a very, very long list for the different subjects of all the goals he has to uh, reach. Uh, those are all the tasks he has to uh, do that connect to those uh, goals. And yeah, the teacher keeps these on his computer and marks lots of crosses on this to keep track of the progress of the students. Yeah. So together with the students and the teachers, we uh, co-created ideas, created lots of paper prototypes. And yeah, it's really uh, cool to see that some of these ideas months well a year ago in the very first workshops that the students came up with these are things we really see in the platform today and uh, they really yeah came up with ideas the students themselves that meet the problems that they have so we took some design requirements out of this context first of all yeah 
the visualizing their progress. So these students really want to have a sense of where they are in their goal-based evaluation. They would only find out every semester how far they are. So that was important to them. Uh, it had to be mobile. It seems very obvious, but at the time, we hadn't thought of that as a priority. We were thinking we're going to make an MVP. We have to have the minimum uh, functionalities and we'll do that on desktop. But for these students, it was clear that's the way they will interact with the system. So that became a big priority. Oh, one back. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, we had a very practical goal. If we could replace those Excel sheets, we would already have a big win in that context. It would be a platform they could use. And another thing is a recognition from the work they do. So these students have a job they do a lot of activities that are also the goals that they have to learn. So they're learning lots of things at their job, but they didn't get official recognition for that. So we also sought a way to be able to do that with the platform. Then uh, the second theme is uh, design and teach, um, for which we went to uh, the campus at Spore in, uh, in Mall. Um, this is a yeah, more an A-level school where we worked with a group of uh, the brightest students who had extra time on their hands. And we also went through the same process here. So what's uh, this school? It's a school where they do a lot of STEM education. So a lot of uh, uh, project-based work with all the different subjects mixed up. The teachers uh, collaborate very much among each other. Uh, but not only within a school, also across different schools. So a math teacher from one school would collaborate with the other math teachers in the different schools. Even though they do a lot of sharing of materials, it became clear that that is a sensitive topic. So if you create learning materials as a teacher, you don't want to just give them to a lazy teacher who will then just make use of it. So it is a sensitive thing. Although sharing is something they really want to be able to do. And another th thing they really would like to see is uh, the ability to combine different learning styles. So where one student uh, works well with yeah, the traditional push-based education with a teacher telling a story, another is more uh, experiential, and they wanted to be able to combine these. So the requirements uh, from this context, obviously the collaboration, super important. They also want to be able to use one bit of material in different contexts. And so learning materials can mean something different for different subjects. It also became clear the amount of learning materials would grow exponentially. Uh, just look at YouTube, how much there is already out there. So making it manageable uh, was very important. And being able to do that by subjects yeah, makes it compatible with a more classical school as well. Um, and the last one, sorry, was integrating uh, the, no, oh. sorry. Yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, the existing materials, yeah. The third uh, and last uh, context we went was um, uh, the flexible learning school in, uh, in DIST. And there you can see they already have a very alternative classroom. So this is not your classical classroom where a teacher stands at the front. They have different areas, a sitting area for reading and having conversations. And they have a computer area or self-studies areas. And a very small area where you can have frontal uh, education. <laughs> One thing they also work with is a week plan. So every week they have a set of uh, required tasks that the students need to do and a set of optional tasks uh, and it's up to them to choose in which order they do this so again you see this differentiation per student so the teacher uses this to keep track of uh, those required tasks so for each student he can check off which tasks have they done uh, all on paper at the moment 
Another important thing they do there is that as students, they have to scale themselves. So they have to say, on this topic for this exercise, I think I am a caterpillar, a cocoon, or a butterfly. So saying whether they are a beginner or more advanced. And this has an impact on, for instance, if they say they're a, a caterpillar, they will get some more frontal training from a teacher. If they are a butterfly, they can just go start straight with the exercise. These scalings are also translated to a big board on the side of the classroom, uh, which helps the students see which other students they can ask for help. So for instance, a friend who has uh, scales himself as a butterfly and has finished an exercise, that's somebody you could ask for help. So, some of the requirements we took from this context, yeah, the self-scaling, super, super important for the teachers in this context. Finding help, also very important. I think it's a very beautiful thing that the students are able to help each other. It also gives the teacher more time to work on the students who really need that help. They have to be able to practically manage their week plan, so all these pieces of paper they are working with, we want to be able to handle that through the platform, uh, being able to mark the tasks off. And again, having to be, being able to differentiate between students is important so that each student can do things differently. And then final important one is uh, connecting uh, their, these tasks to the learning outcomes. So the actual learning goals set by GEO, uh, the requirements for each teacher that the students need to learn, uh, they want to be able to connect that to the activities, which allows them to be able to be a bit more creative with those activities. So we started as three different themes and three little mini projects. But we soon realized that these themes were so integrated. We can't uh, create learning materials without connecting these to the learning goals. So we decided very soon to create one uh, tool, one solution that would handle all these three different contexts. So how do we go about designing this? I'm just going to focus on the fundamental approach. I can share weeks and weeks of design work, of course, but roughly it looked like this. We had a, a research phase where we interacted with the students, the teachers really learned the context. Then a period in which we designed and created a first version of the solution. But very important is a very long alpha phase in which we are now. So the school is running on, at the moment, seven different schools, uh, and they're really using it. And there's a lot being learned from that. So what's important in the way we approached it, because it's such a complex problem, yeah, a wicked challenge, creating a solution for every school, that's almost impossible. So we start small. We start small and iterate from there. And we do this in an yeah, agile approach. Anybody who works with development is very familiar with this concept. Basically, it means yeah, work, breaking your work up in, in small sprints of two or three weeks and delivering something at the end of each sprint. And a very important element in that is having a demo at the end of each sprint. So we opened the invitation to everybody, uh, teachers and students, and at some point we had like 20, 30 people showing up for these demos to see what we had uh, done in those two weeks, and particularly because they want to give their feedback. And one teacher, for instance, uh, yeah, said like, how amazing it is to see that they give feedback one time and two weeks later they see the feedback implemented. And yeah, they talked a lot about being used to projects taking a year before they, they arrive. 
life. And this way we, we really created a community with all these people working around this platform. And I believe this is where the true co-creation lies. So often when we talk about co-creation, people think the workshops that we do at the start of a project, also that's co-creation of course. But this is where it really happened, where we have a tool, we have a solution, and we keep changing it and adjusting it and adding and making sure that it really is what they need. And the fact that these teachers came there, they could see that their input was taken into consideration, it really worked very well. It also is more efficient. You know, we're not spending time building something that in the end turns out not to be what people need. And it was very interesting that all these different contexts, the different ways of learning, they came together and they learned from each other. And yeah, it was motivating not only for those teachers, but also for ourselves. We could see who we were building for. We're going to show uh, a few screens of uh, what the application, uh, our solution looks like. Just some fundamental basic architecture. At the highest level, we have learning goals. So these are, uh, or learning plans, these are the goals set by GO for those different schools. So these are the requirements for teachers, the goals they need to get across to their students. And at the bottom level, we have learning activities. That's the smallest element in this platform. A learning activity is a, can be an exercise, a piece of text, a video, something that you can learn from. And in the middle, we have learning mixes, which combine different learning activities. And Mark is going to take you through a few of the key screens of the application. Okay, so we have this tool running live now in uh, seven schools. It's in our different schools using it and yeah, light isn't ideal, but this is a learning mix. It's important to notice that uh, the progress of the students is tracked on each activity and that each activity is connected to learning outcomes and these learning outcomes can be of different curricula. For example, if you have someone working in a workplace, in a real workplace for an employer, he can connect his criteria or quality criteria to the same learning activity as a curriculum activity of the school. That's one thing students were saying, for example, that they wanted work to be transferable to contexts. Okay, so this is, for example, I'm going to go very briefly to this. Uh, this is a screen of a student doing a learning activity. It's not that visible, but up there is a bicycle, a car, and a rocket. Uh, that's the same as a cocoon, a caterpillar, and a butterfly. Um, and they can scale themselves in. And interesting there is when you uh, see next stream. Yeah, okay, it's not that clear. Again, but this is the bicycle, the car, and uh, the rockets. And you can track, for example, when you search for one student, you see where he's scaled. But students can also see who is scaled where, who can help me on this learning activity, because I'm stuck. Yeah, they don't have to wait like this for 20 minutes. That's what I saw when I was in the classroom there, that students had to wait too long. So this is very interesting also for the teacher to, to see who he needs to coach, who needs instruction, etc., etc. This is, for example, an evaluation. Uh, we have feedback integrated in the learning activities. Again, these learning activities can be anything. They can be doing something outside, can be a reference to a textbook. They can be uh, a, an interactive activity. But if it's an interactive one, teacher can give some feedback. There. There's self-evaluation here. This student evaluated himself and put some feedback in this icon, which you can see, of course, when you hover it. You put your own feedback underneath. 
And one thing teacher said, we need to do this in bulk. So we added that up there, doing it in bulk. But I'm moving further to another screen. This is uh, something we built on uh, an extra workshop we did a couple of months ago. Uh, this is a screen where you can see the progress through the lens of a learning plan. So you have the learning plan, you see all the students that have reached a goal for the uh, filter you say. Uh, for example, I need minimal one or two evaluations, three. They need to be uh, this norm, uh, five, uh, for example, and then you can uh, check them off in one time. So this is a, a lot of workloads covered. We really need to work on workload because working goal-based is, as David said before, a lot of work. Two weeks of work for eight students. We can't handle that for groups like 20, 30. That's too much. So this reduces workload a lot. Uh, and you can zoom in then to uh, the specific ones that don't uh, meet the requirements. Uh, here you see, you should see uh, which learning mixes um, you covered, which goals, which students did which goals. And if you say, oh, I forgot these, you can create a new learning mix uh, to, uh, to start from there and build something new for these students. Okay, so so we see this is a tool that is fundamentally student-centric. So uh, really also in the information architecture or the technological architecture, the student is really central in the application. So that means a student can be completely unique in what he does, when he does it. Everything can be unique per student. So I think that's a very important fundamental feature of how we built this. Also, it's connected directly to the geo learning uh, requirements. So this allows yeah, uh, teachers to be more creative. They are able to have learning materials that are connected to the different learning requirements and they can choose and pick existing materials that are in the platform. And yeah, they can feel safe that they are meeting the requirements while still being creative in how they do this. And yeah, the whole tool is transparent and clear. It's very clear for students why they have to do an activity because it reaches that goal that is set by the government that you need to learn. So it's very transparent. Yeah, it's also supporting collaboration, teachers working together. And that's very important because if teachers are dependent from each other, work together, you are much more able to scale innovation in schools. Uh, and it's also supporting learning about learning. We have a lot of data on the learning activity, which the learner can use to learn about his own self, about his metacognition, but also the teacher can use to see which is effective, which not. The school can use to see if a program works. NGO can use to see if the curriculum is covered well and what we need to learn about the curriculum, because now it takes five years to build a curriculum, and this should go faster. So now we have live data of curriculum in schools. We adapted the Agile approach since March uh, last school year. Uh, the sprint demos had a new, uh, we added a new layer to the sprint demos, that's the learning network. As David said, we have a combination of learning contexts, so we do the demos in the schools. 
teachers learn from each other, visit the classroom. Uh, that's very nice to see. We always work with students as well, get feedback from them as well uh, for the tool, but also feedback about the learning in the school. So we switch roles. Yeah, I said this already. We are testing it in seven schools. We uh, take care of communication uh, as well. This uh, is a newsletter we send every sprint to say what's new. Uh, if you missed a sprint, you want to subscribe to another demo, etc., etc. What did we learn? If you start with an implementation of an MVP, you need to go all the way. Teachers need to get loose of what they were doing before the Excels. Stop doing the Excels because workload will skyrocket. Uh, if you do and the Excels and this, you need to jump. We reduced uh, teachers' workloads. The, um, we see that we create room for autonomy because now they're sure they're covering the goal so they can try something, um, it's covered, and they can always see progress there. Um, important is that teachers need to make a mind shift. We saw using Ixo in the beginning, they were like, mm, yeah, okay, will this work? I don't know. But now all our teachers are, uh, for example, there are some standing here uh, with a, uh, an info uh, on the marketplace. Uh, they are ambassadors, and it's just great to see. That is nice for us. And, of course, it's not just about digital. It's always about the combination of how you use it. If, is, is the way you use the tool consistent with your classroom management? And then you can really make uh, the most out of it. Uh, so we are not here saying, use XO and education is going to be solved. It's the professional that really makes a difference, and we love teachers for what they're doing. Uh, this is, for example, what teachers said, uh, more con uh, conscious about the learning outcomes, uh, more critical about choosing an activity in a textbook, uh, and that is very nice to see. Yeah, another teacher, uh, I already covered this, uh, who has this backbone uh, for being creative. Um, this is uh, what students say, for example, if they forget their book, it's no problem, Mixo got us covered. Then, again, this is the being consistent in the classroom. The teachers, if they used Mixo very good, the students feel it, that they know where they are and they, they feel being coached, that they've been coached. And this boy, I really uh, love what he says. This is a boy uh, who has some, he's, he's wired differently too. I'm not going to stamp his uh, etiquette, I don't know. <laughs> um, but. Now, you say it's clear for him now when he's working on a project. Before, a project was really scaring for him, too chaotic. And now he sees, okay, I need to do this and then do that. And it's all cut up in, in pieces he can handle very well. And he even stood up before the classroom and teachers were surprised that he uh, did that for us. And so, very nice. This is a teacher who said that his workload is going down. Um, and then uh, what's next uh, for us? Um, I'm really anxious to start with uh, project learning. We already did a design workshop. We learned, thanks to Night Moves, uh, how to implement uh, service design. So we are doing it ourselves now, um, but uh, still needs to grow there. More things that the future holds. There's a, uh, a track on curriculum design. There's new legislation on curriculum. So there's a great opportunity. You are doing micro diplomas on blockchain. So just a single learning outcome. So you can have that unique profile also 
uh, validated by government. Connecting push and pull with uh, artificial intelligence. If we are a step further and our architecture is running in schools, we're going to have a lot of data. We need data for AI. So that's something we are really looking forward to, what that can do, combining a curriculum of questions with uh, push. And then um, data as an asset, of course, covered that. Uh, design thinking for educators. Uh, I hope you... Um, got to know uh, the people of Ezolenic uh, with their uh, info stand on uh, design thinking for educators. They made their own learning mix on STEAM education. It's in XOBIP. There's a lot more in XO than I could show you. Uh, it's in XOBIP. I just downloaded in my account of XO uh, so I can start working with it. So sharing, collaborating, etc., etc. So, and then finally, of course, we have to thank uh, a lot of people. As any service design project, we cannot do it ourselves. And here are yeah, the students who put in their creativity and their time, the teachers particularly who came to all the uh, demos, uh, the team at uh, GEO uh, also for yeah, taking this daring challenge to build a, a project like this, uh, and the design team, of course, uh, of which many are in the room tonight. Uh, thank you to all of these. I want to say something about it. I want to say special thanks to Night Moves because it was really stars aligned when we worked together. They always took us further than we thought we'd go. There was always a surprise in a sprint. That was just great working with them. And also the team that I work with now, I want to thank them too because it's, it's sometimes working in difficult circumstances with a lot of extra work. Innovation is still too much something extra. So I want to thank them as well. Thank you. You'll get the opportunity to ask some questions uh, after uh, Rebecca's talk. I think this is already a great example on how uh, teachers and designers work together on a project and implemented service design to come up with an idea that fits uh, the users so they can really use it in their classroom. But now we want to show you, Rebecca is going to show you more how the uh, methods and the techniques of service design thinking can be implemented in ed education. So how can teachers use these uh, methods, these te techniques, to really teach their students the right skills that they need for the future? So I would like to welcome uh, Rebecca to the stage. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rebecca Gradner. Obviously, you can tell by my accent that, ac that English is easy for me. Um, <laughs> but. I don't know your school system, so I'm going to talk a little bit from the perspective of a teacher in New York City. I teach eighth grade English, which I know you guys don't have eighth grade necessarily, or it's not the same. So I will say this. I teach 13 and 14-year-olds, which means I'm essentially teaching children who are not quite ready to handle themselves, but also not still cute. So <laughs> they're a tough group, but I love teaching them. and. Um, I've had the opportunity to work with an organization called Institute of Play. And before I worked with Institute of Play, I worked in a pretty traditional school. I worked in a school where it was all about testing. It was all about the standardized tests that the students were taking. It was all about, were the students making growth in X, Y, and Z? Were they able to read better? Were they able to write better? Not who they were as people. And when I started working with Institute of Play, I realized something. It's not about that, and it isn't anymore. Like Stina was saying, we're not creating kids for factory lines. We're not creating students who are going to go into a world where they have to be compliant, 
where they have to be able to do task one, task two, task three, exactly as it's said. They're gonna be presented with problems. Believe me, I know they're going to be presented with problems because I live in Trump's America. There's a lot of problems they're going to have to deal with. And so that's going to require of them a lot of different skills. They're going to need critical thinking. They're going to need empathy. They're going to need creativity, a lot of creativity. They're going to need to be able to solve problems because our generation is leaving behind lots of problems for them, just as our parents' generation did for us. They're going to need to collaborate. The world is so much smaller now. I'm in a room talking to people in a country that is so far from my own, and yet here we are. And they need communication. Our students are so connected, both on social media and in person, um, and through the internet with the entire world, and so they need to be able to communicate. So Institute of Play has a list of game-like learning principles that they use. Uh, they start with, and this is one of my favorites, everyone is a participant. And the idea here is that, kind of like what David was saying, school is no, should no longer be about students just receiving information. Because that's not the way the world works anymore. Media is run by people, right? It's no longer run by one news organization and they send out all the information. Everything that they gain, they need to be a participant in. Learning has to feel like play. This is another one that we as adults sometimes forget. If you ever watch a child play a video game for three hours, and it's really easy, just ask a child to play a video game for three hours and you can watch them. And they will stay engaged, and they will learn, and they will grow within that because it feels like play. Because play is a place where we learn much faster and much more efficiently. Everything is interconnected. This is one that we as adults know and wish that our students understood. I know that my students are 13 and 14 years old, so they don't understand that yesterday is connected to tomorrow. So when they take actions, they don't understand the impact of it. But they're going to need to know the impact of things on a larger scale within the system. Learning happens by doing. This is another one that we as adults forget. We always want to tell children what to do. We want to tell them, this is what this is. This is how it happens. Now go do it. And they can't. They have to have their hands on it. And they have to fail. And they have to be able to take those failures and use them to, re to iterate, to use them to try again and to see a different way. And because of that, feedback needs to be immediate and ongoing. They work best if they're getting some response, right? See, that was very helpful. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and challenge must be constant. We all know we've been in that class where you knew exactly what you had to do and you could do it, and it was fine, and it just was painfully boring. And when something is just challenging enough, but not too hard, that's where we do our prime learning. So I want to show us a quick video of a project that I did that was a design project with students. And it was one of the first times that design thinking clicked for me. It was one of the first times where I went, oh, this is how this really should look. So we'll take a look at the video and then we'll talk a little. Once you gain your students' trust, if you can give them something that's just a little beyond their reach, then they will go way farther than you ever expected. And they will be hooked into that because every kid wants to achieve. Me having an idea alone is not gonna make as much of a difference as 
10 kids having an idea and putting that to life. The students decided that they wanted to have this campaign against bullying and they created a logo and a slogan and the slogan was break the system. So their idea was that bullying is this system of bad things that kind of happen between victims and perpetrators, between bullies and the people that they bully. So the idea was if they could get control of this thing by teaching people to break the system, then things would start to get a little bit better for people. In order to make this belong to the kids, I started off by starting with how they were feeling. And things started coming out, like I experienced bullying at this time, or I saw a kid get bullied and it made me feel like this, or even I feel like a really bad person right now because I've seen what things that I've done could have done to somebody else. I think one of the most important things for making something belong to the kids is letting them talk. Um, do you still follow someone? anyone's footsteps? Where's the find someone with confidence stuff? When the kids feel connected to the material, they engage in it. And when they engage in it, they participate in a whole different way. And the other way that kids really participate and they become participants is when you hand over the onus of learning to them. Kids learn so much more when they're talking to each other. They learn so much more when they're working through a problem together. They learn so much more when the feedback comes from each other rather than from this higher power that they hear from all the time. The things that were good about it was the collaborative aspect of it, how we were all able to talk together and make a huge way for teachers and students to learn with each other about not bullying. Starting at a place of collaboration, finding the common ground is a place to build that collaboration and it becomes a form of inclusion because when you have kids collaborating on big projects, on big issues, on solving big problems, then the kids who might not normally have the strength in a situation, their strengths come out. I was scared that this wasn't going to work like we wanted it to, but it did. Like it really taught me lots of things, not only like as a person, but you know, um, as a kid. The thing I like the most about the class model is I really like that everything's contextualized. I feel like my students have connected a lot with that. And the fact that they have this reason, this impetus for figuring things out. And, and then on top of it, I think it's really nice to be at a school where we're expected to have students collaborate because I really learned the value of collaboration for kids and how much of a difference that makes for them in learning. So, there's a lot in that video. That project was really, really meaningful for me, and believe it or not, that project happened in a matter of a week. The first time that I did it. It actually ended up becoming a part of my English curriculum. It started out as we have, have a project week at the school that I worked at that was started by Institute of Play, and I designed the project because a girl had come to my classroom in tears. And she said, they're all bullying me. They all hate me. All the girls in this grade, they won't leave me alone. And as I talked to her more, I realized this was a problem that was really coming from them, that she wasn't the only one experiencing this and that she wasn't the only one worried about it. And then it actually was becoming a pretty nationally recognized, important issue. And 
it allowed my students just in that week to begin to develop a lot of these skills. But then it became a part of my English curriculum. The next year, it became a part of my classroom. So this happened through the design process, whether it was in a week or over a long period of time. We use the design process. And the design process begins at empathizing. So like Mark and David talked about, this research phase, so important. And that empathizing stage in that project just started out with kids understanding bullying. They watched documentaries. They read texts. They interviewed other students, both from our school and from elsewhere. They looked at YouTube videos of students who talked about their own bullying experiences. And they were able to research what it was that was at the core of this problem so that they could then define it. Once they defined it, they were able to say, this is where the leverage point is. This is where we need to make a change. And for that project, that was really around figuring out that something needed to be done in school. Something needed to be done with young kids in order to make a change. They did a lot of brainstorming. And this step to me is one of my favorite to watch because it's incredible to watch the things that we might miss if we just ask for that one answer. In school, I was asked for one answer, and it was the right answer or it was the wrong answer. That's no longer true of our world, and it can't be true of our classrooms, and that brainstorming phase is what's going to teach kids that there are a million different answers, and you won't know what the right one is until you start to experiment with it. Which brings me to prototyping, just an opportunity for students to try out an idea, to see what it would look like. And then they can bring it into the testing phase. So just like Mark and David were talking about, in that phase of just bringing things around and being able to get that feedback on a regular basis and to go back and forth between testing and prototyping, brainstorming and prototyping, brainstorming and defining. All of those steps are going to be really cyclical. So you'll notice that those arrows go in circles because you go in circles constantly. And ultimately, when you feel like you've tested it to death, that's when you can try to apply it. And applying it gives you the opportunity to see it in context, to implement it. I'm not going to ignore that <laughs> I can't. I'm, I'm a middle school teacher, which means that when something's interrupted, all my kids go. <laughs> uh, so you guys can look up. I don't know what the stampede is, but it happens occasionally. And finally, you can reflect. So you can think about what does, what's happening and is it working? And that brings you right back to the beginning where you start to do research again. This cycle that we created was based on the Stanford Institute of Design's design cycle. So to many designers in the room, it will look extremely familiar. We've just sort of connected it with what happens for our students on the ground. So it's time for you guys to become designers if you're not already. And if you are, this will just be a fun little activity. So I want you to take out your wallet and... I want you to, if you have it on you, to look through the contents. And I want you to think about how well things fit and where you store things and how well that's working. And I want you to ask yourself if you can imagine a wallet that would work better for you. My wallet doesn't work for me, but I am so committed to it that every time it breaks, I buy the same wallet. But... It has a couple of really big problems for me. One, I cannot fit all of the little cards that I get from all of the, like I love 
getting rewards cards, so I like to put them all in there, but I only go to places like once a month. So I'm carrying all of those around. I can't find them. I have to take them all out and I have to hold up the whole line, spreading them across the table looking for the right one. I also like a small wallet, but my money has to be shoved into the change pocket because that's the only place it fits. So there's a couple of really big problems that I can see and I could totally, given the time and resources, redesign a wallet that would be perfect for me. But that's not the challenge. We can all design something perfect for ourselves. That's great. Do that. But you've got to start to think about your audience. So I want you to turn to the person next to you because you are going to be designing a wallet for them. And I want you to ask them, what do they need in a wallet? What are the problems with their wallet? What are the challenges that they're seeing? So turn and talk to someone. All right, can I get your attention again? All right, I'll do this like it's my classroom. Three, two, one, and zero. You guys are way better than my students are. I have to do that like four times. So you've got some information now. I couldn't understand any of it, but I assume you got some information based on your movements. So I want you to, you don't have to actually write this down if you don't want, um, but if you have a pen and paper, it might be helpful to you. I want you to write down what the biggest problem your partner has with their current wallet. So what, was, what is the biggest thing standing in their way of really enjoying this wallet? And I want you to jot down a few ideas for how to solve that problem. Do not just jot down one. Don't go with your first idea. Write down your first idea, love it for a second, and then come up with at least two more. And then I want you to narrow down from those three, because you might have gotten a really good one on that third one. I want you to narrow down to one idea and to draw a sketch or to imagine, so that you could describe it to someone, a wallet, what that wallet would look like. So prototype for them that wallet. So I'll give you 30 seconds to draw or write <laughs> or, sec or the think. All right, three, two, one, and zero. So you already started to do this um, because you guys are very intuitive. But I want you to talk to your, your partner about the design. Get some feedback for from them. Do they like it? Do they see any problems? Are there changes you might need to make? Did you guys already do that? <laughs> I don't know. It was all happening in Dutch, and I'm not sure. <laughs> do you guys need 30 seconds to do that? All right. Take 30 seconds. All right. Three, two, one, and zero. So congratulations, you guys are designers now. Even though that was like split second decisions and it was very, very fast, that's just a little taste of what that design process looks like. And for me, one of the biggest parts that fits in with the curriculum that we have is that empathize stage. So we often in schools ask kids to do things for no particular reason. We present them with subjects and I can't tell you how many times I've heard a student or remember saying this myself, why do I need to know this, right? And that's where that empathizing stage comes in. If you are doing something for somebody, that human aspect that Stina was talking about, that human-centered end of things, then it's much, much more meaningful. So for my students, when they were creating this bullying project, they actually were designing them for a particular audience. 
Some of them designed projects that were for elementary schools. Some of them designed products that were for teachers. Some were for parents. Others were for high schoolers. And they, they actually thought about what does that particular group of people need, right? They used that to define what really was the problem at its core. I also did a project in a, uh, a class that was, <laughs> yes. <laughs> It was during the Iran-Israel conflict um, over nuclear proliferation, and I was teaching a history and English literature class. Um, and so to combine those two aspects, I had to teach a large number of wars in a very short period of time. And so instead of contextualizing it by saying, we're going to learn about wars, here's World War I, here's World War II, all right, like here's the Vietnam War, Here's this, I could have laid it out like that and I could have just shoved the information at them. But it would have been meaningless. So instead, they spent that empathizing stage learning about what, how war worked in order to st solve the Iran-Israel conflict. They were told that they were part of a think tank that was called the Middle East Strategy Team. They knew that MEST would eventually be coming to uh, our school in order to interview them about their thoughts on the conflict, but that they had to build up a ton of knowledge. And they needed to be ready to talk about this on the level of a think tank official from the government. And they did, they rose to the occasion because it mattered. We've also done a ton of other projects at our school um, where we were asking kids to really dig into something in a way where they were just trying to understand it. We had a recycled art fashion show, which meant that they had to really learn about what materials were not easily recycled and to understand also what is the history of fashion and what does that have to do with what happens at a fashion show. We had students who created a restaurant. They had to understand the business end of things. They had to understand who they were creating the restaurant for. They had to understand the way that food works. We had students who created like athletic games which meant they had to understand both the physical aspects and also what kids want. They had to understand their audience. And we also, every year at um, the school run by Institute of Play, have students create a Rube Goldberg machine, which is one of those machines where you like drop a marble in and then it's, it does a bunch of different steps until it like turns off a light or something. And so they really had to understand the way that all of those aspects that lead into that work. And that brings them to defining the problem. Um, so when you are choosing a problem for your classroom, it really needs to be connected to the real world. And there are kind of three aspects of that. First of all, it needs to connect to student and teacher interests. If you don't care about it in a classroom, if the teacher doesn't care about it in the classroom, the students will not care about it. And if it's not connected to the lives that they live, they also won't care about it. They are very, very self-centered at that age. And so all the way through, for some people, forever. Um, and so if you can connect with their interests, that will help. Um, I teach a unit on dystopian fiction, so like Hunger Games and Divergent and that whole uh, trend of literature because I love it, because I feel passionate about it, because it interests me. And I come dressed up as Effie Trinket from The Hunger Games, and I tell the students that they are going to write to the death, and 
they are so attached to it because I love it and because they love it. Activism and problem solving really help. I definitely, in America, a really big issue is racism, obviously. It's something that we're dealing with very directly. And so I bring that into my classroom and I ask students for solutions to problems that don't have answers. Right? In school, we often ask kids to answer questions that already have answers. We're not in that world anymore where you need to be able to regurgitate an answer. We're in a world where you have to answer questions that don't have answers. And so we need to be asking them in classrooms. But it also needs to come from traditional content. We're not throwing away school. Right? We can't throw away school. We've built so much. But it's about integrating that traditional content. My students still write essays and they still read books. But it's about connecting it to that real world aspect so that something meaningful is happening for them. So when you're looking at des using design thinking in the classroom, an important place to start is from what the teachers are already teaching. Looking at what they're passionate about. What fits in with the content. Where does that content get driven in the real world? Right? In an English classroom, it's all about communication. In a science classroom, it's about how things work. In a math classroom, it's about understanding the math that's behind things. Things like business, things like architecture, right? There's so much of it built into our world, it's just about finding those real world problems and identifying them for students to truly grapple with. So next step, as I said, is brainstorming. And like I said, this is, for me, one of the most important things because we get so used to asking for answers. Often I have students use a brainstorming tool called Collect and Cluster. If you're a designer, you're probably very familiar with this. But the idea is to generate as many ideas as you can, to cluster them into groups based on category, and then to figure out what patterns are starting to come through. This allows them to really feel free to put the dumbest idea they have out there because the dumbest idea might be the smartest idea. And it gives them an opportunity to see how all of their ideas are coming together. Um, you want kids to take time in this stage. You want to remind them that the first answer is not the best answer. We, in schools too often, we want students to get to the right thing fast, right? Timed tests, due dates, all those things exist, of course. But we have to teach students to take time on the right things. And that's a chance for kids to play and to experiment and to fail in a way that helps them to learn. After they've done that, they have to come back to that define stage. They have to identify which design will work best to solve the problem. And that's where they really start to narrow down and to get ready to do the hardest part of the work, which is prototyping. Now, what does prototyping mean when you're not designing an app, for example? When you're prototyping an app, right, that it's very clear you're going to put out a version of it, they'll try it, and then it'll get fixed. But what does that even look like in a classroom? In my classroom, that often looks like outlining or drafting or creating a version of a written thing before it happens. In other projects, it looks like drawing. During the Middle East strategy team project, my students interviewed a former soldier who had gone to Afghanistan on behalf of the US Army. And they were told that they needed to prove to the Middle East strategy team that they understood the plight of soldiers um, by designing something for a soldier to use in war. Now, being American teenagers, they all were like, I will be designing the strongest bomb and the biggest gun. 
And I said, hold on, let's empathize here. Let's interview this man. So they asked him, what were the problems that he faced at war? And he said they were things like sleeping comfortably, things like staying cool in the desert, things like carrying supplies, urinating. There were lots of things that they did not expect were the problems, and they came out of it, and not a single person created a weapon. All of them created things like this, a backpack with a Kevlar vest and a water hose and supplies for everything that you needed, or a bed that had all of the supplies that you could possibly need to survive a night in the desert. And they were able to prototype these just by modeling. So in some classes, there's going to be physical modeling of things, right? In a math class or a science class or even in a history class. Um, in other classes, it's going to be pen to paper or finger to keyboard. And for my students, a lot of that is outlining and laying out their ideas in a way that matches with the way their brain works. I try not to tell students this is, when I was in school, an outline was like a very specific thing. It had Roman numerals. Everything had to be indented a certain way. And if your brain didn't work like that, too bad. So like David was saying, if you weren't wired that way, you didn't have an opportunity. But the great thing about prototyping as a stage is that it doesn't have to look one certain way. It gives students an opportunity to use their brains the way that they work. Those are all outlines for the same paper but students have gone about it in totally different ways. The next step is playtesting. Um, and like David and Mark were saying, that spiral is ongoing. It happens over and over and over again. In my English classroom, if you ask my students what we're probably doing today, they will say revision. Because in an English language arts classroom, when you're writing, playtesting, is looking at your paper through an, yet another lens and figuring out where you need to fix it, and then redoing it, and then trying again. Because the fact of the matter is, my students have now learned that actual writers don't write something and turn it into the newspaper, and then it gets printed. That would be insane. They understand that it is an iterative process. They understand that you have to test it a million different ways before you decide it's truly ready to be seen. Which brings me to the application place. And this, for me, is the most fun. This is the chance where students get to see that what they're doing has a meaning. This is the chance where students get to see that what they do can live in the real world, right? And so that takes on lots of different forms. In my dystopian fiction project, students were competing to write dystopian fiction themselves. And they presented them to their peers and a panel of parents who then narrowed them down and voted until they had found one winner. So it could be competitive. It could also be a presentation. For the bullying project, my students went into elementary school classrooms and presented to students. They went into sixth grade classrooms and presented to younger students in their school. They sat down with administrators and guidance counselors at schools and talked about this is what needs to be done. So they had a chance to talk face to face with the actual audience they were designing for. Just last week in my class, my students finished writing a letter to a policymaker. So they were writing to senators and to uh, CEOs of companies and 
to the mayor and to the director of the Department of Education with all these suggestions about how the world should look different. After much, much research, after going through that playtesting process over and over and over again, they made a decision and they wrote this letter. And for the first time in many of their lives, my students addressed an envelope to send a letter in the mail, which after I explained to them that your name doesn't go on the bottom, um, <laughs> was a really incredible experience for them because they had the chance to, they spent that entire project being like, well, we're not actually gonna send them. And then I walked in one day with stamps and envelopes and they were like, oh, we're actually gonna send them? And so they addressed envelopes to the United Nations and to the governors and to the senators and they, my classroom was a mess of papers and pens and stamps and students were up during lunch, but they were up during lunch. They gave up their lunch to send letters to policymakers because it was meaningful for them, because they realized now their voices were being heard. That process of presenting, that process of seeing your product in the real world, whether it's a fake presentation to a fake think, think tank from the Middle East, or it's actually presenting to your peers and parents, or it's just sending something out into the world. That application step is one that is m most meaningful, I think, to the students. And that gives us the opportunity to reflect. And I find that my students know themselves better than they did when they had a standardized test in front of them, right? My students had lots of data on themselves at my first school. They had lists of questions they had gotten wrong, they had lists of skills they needed to work on, and they didn't care. And they couldn't care less because it didn't mean anything to them. But when it means something to them, they will reflect. They will self-assess. They will evaluate how well something's worked and where they're going with it. Just the other day, I had a conference with a student, um, and it was right after we had finished writing a speech to the principal about how their schedules should be changed. And the student was talking, it was a conference with her and her parent, and her parent said, you know, the student explained that she had been working on um, empathizing with her audience more and trying to find the counterclaims that her audience might use to argue against her in order to strengthen her own argument. And her mother said, oh, I know. She said, just the other day in the car, we were trying to go home, and Gracie told us that we needed to stop at this place. And before we could get a single word out of our mouth, she had explained away all of our arguments. And so we went. And that's what I love about this, is our, my students recognize this is what I'm working on, and this is, I want to be good at it because I understand where it lives in the real world. So take a moment to reflect to think to yourself, what appeals to you about using the design process? Think about if you were to implement a design project in a classroom, what are some of the potential ideas? What might that look like in a school? And what are some of the potential benefits and the challenges of impl implementing this in schools? Because there are a lot of challenges. Chances are this is going to be the biggest challenge. Many teachers have been teaching for a long time. And I know, despite the fact that I went to a very, very innovative university, this isn't what they were teaching me. I had to learn it in the field by connecting kind of through serendipity with the right organization. There are a 
lot of resources out there. There are a lot of groups that are trying to make this happen. I think the fact that this arena is happening right now is a really big deal. To give you one more thought about it, thinking about how to make traditional content and des the design process come together is simpler than it seems. The design process is a vehicle. The content still stays the same. You're still teaching the same things. So for my classroom, I just changed that, that design process to be about writing, right? It still has reading. It still has argument, informational, and entertainment reading, right? Um, students still collect evidence and information and ideas, and they still draft and revise and finalize. But it's coming from a place that's important to them, and that's what matters about it. Um, additionally, if you're looking for a, an organization to help out with this, the Institute of Play, their website is full of resources, not just um, for teachers, but larger scale. Um, they run a lot of workshops um, that can be taken by teachers, both digitally and in person. Um, we're pretty far, so the digital ones might be better. Um, but they also have lots of resources for implementing these things in a school, in a business, in um, lots of different contexts, um, including um, some of the games that they've created with teachers for the classroom. Yeah, so I guess that's it. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you uh, very much, Rebecca, for your inspiring story and also giving some concrete uh, implementations in your classroom. I think that's very inspiring to some teachers here. We're going to set up the uh, final act of tonight, which is the round uh, table session. We will be asking uh, some questions, but it will be mainly up to you to ask some questions. So in a second, we will also be passing the microphone uh, around. And if you have some questions for Mark or Rebecca, please feel free to, uh, to ask them. Actually, I already have a first question to start off with. Um, so there are some teachers here, but uh, you are a teacher yourself, Rebecca. You have been a teacher as well, uh, Mark. But what would you recommend as a first step uh, for teachers to do when they're in this current system where they feel like they don't have as much uh, place to, uh, to experiment with things? What would be the first step that they could take? Reflect, but not too long. Start doing. Uh, that's the first thing that, that first thing that crosses my mind, um, because there's a lot of thoughts, a lot of conversation about innovating the classroom. If you have a classroom at your hands, please do. Yeah, um, I think definitely the the doing is important. I think um, it's scary, and like I said, failure is really hard for us as adults. But if we're going to expect that of our students, we have to try it as teachers. Um, I also think really important to keep in mind is that those changes can be small. Um, adding an inquiry to something to make it a real-world problem-solving situation can do it. I work in a school now where we use a very traditional curriculum. It is a, a specified curriculum. I get handed paperwork that says what I'm supposed to be doing in my classroom. But my classroom still looks like this um, because I've... A, I've just found ways to connect what the curriculum is asking me to do to a larger real-world context. And just that connection switches the script a little bit. Um, Rebecca, uh, 
I can imagine that um, it's, first of all, great to see uh, the way you work with your students. I was wondering, does that rub off on other teachers in the same school? Do they, they get influenced by the way you work with your students? Yeah, um, so the first school that I worked in um, doing this was uh, a school where everyone was being encouraged to do that, um, but working in a school now where that's not always the case, um, teachers often walk by my classroom during lunch and notice that students are there voluntarily doing work, um, and that's when people ask questions. Um, and I think more and more I see teachers in my school starting to dip into this, and they come and they ask questions, and they, they want to be doing it because they want their classroom to look as exciting and as interesting to the students. When I was teaching, I didn't come across uh, service design yet, but I was doing projects uh, with my students. For example, we made uh, an audio recording for uh, young people with multiple sclerosis. I don't know how to translate that. Uh, but uh, I think um, what I experienced was that I was kind of yelling in the desert um, doing these projects. And the only opportunity that you could create is to, for example, make a video with your class and show it in other classrooms or go to other classrooms or look for a parent's uh, evening and do something there to make the activity that you... Uh, you to, to make this activity uh, really come across the other uh, teachers and can be influence, influential a little bit in the school. When you go to, through this uh, design process with students, so both in the process of EXO or in your classroom, what do you see that, what is the hardest thing for students to uh, uh, grasp? Can they manage this? Uh, we don't know what the answer is going to be or uh, getting involved into a topic. What are the things they struggle with? I'm thinking about a quote of the student uh, with autism that um, where Ixo helps him to make it clear. But I also had this experience when you want to design something with students, you always have these moments where things get stuck. And these are very interesting moments. And you tend to um, go over them too fast, but as you said, it's a very important uh, aspect that they brainstorm and don't go for the first idea and have many ideas and use some brainstorming techniques to uh, to learn that there's more in themselves. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's our role as teachers to to help them with the methodology of service design, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but also just as a teacher to help them uh, find more in themselves than they. Expected. I think um, my students who struggled in school find that this is exciting and wonderful and freeing. My students who were doing really, really well in a traditional model freak out a little bit. Um, <laughs> they get really stressed out because they want to come up and they want to go, is this right? And the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's and, good, yeah. and I think that that's, for, for some of the more su traditionally successful students, sometimes there's like a frustration block that exists that they have to get over. Um, and I usually find that in the, in the first half of the year, those students are very angry at me because they think I'm trying to mess with them in some way, like they think that this is some like purposeful way to stress them out. Um, but
but about the middle of the year, they wrap their head around it, and then they sort of jump over that block and realize, well, okay, if this is... But they realize what they've always known in school, which is you have to do what the teacher wants you to do, right? Mm -hmm. And so eventually they can tap into the teacher wants me to do what I want to do. Um, and that's very scary for them, but once they wrap their head around it, they're a lot more successful. Yeah, it's the mind shift we refer to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you talked about uh, empathizing being an important factor, and uh, for instance, the example of the soldier. Um, how practically do you go about this? Do you bring a, a soldier to the classroom, or uh, what do you do? So in that case, I did. Um, I had I had a friend who had served in the uh, U.S. Army, and so I asked him to come in. Um, but there's also, like, a lot of it is traditional resources, right? Like, I use, uh, I use books, and I use articles, and I use documentaries and YouTube videos and anything I can get my hands on. But the best thing, I think, is if kids can talk to someone, um, so I just use, I like unabashedly use all my resources. I'm never afraid to send out a message on social media and be like, who knows about this thing? Um, I have a friend who's a writer. I always have her come in and uh, judge their writing or do a quick Skype interview because um, she lives in California, so she's far away. Um, I, like, I even ask adults who are just knowledgeable on things to come in. Um, for the Middle East strategy team, I, the panel that came to see them from the Middle East strategy team was the soldier that they had met, um, a friend of mine who was doing an internship at an Iranian nuclear proliferation organization, um, and then um, my roommate who sold cosmetics at Lush. Um, <laughs> But in a lot of ways, it's just having that like adult-facing time and having feeling the pressure of having to explain something to somebody. Um, so I think when you have the resources, use them all. Um, lots of people you don't realize want to be involved in education. People love coming into classrooms and seeing what kids are doing, and they love seeing kids excited about things like this. Um, but where you don't fill in the gaps with the internet and your roommate who sells cosmetics at Lush. <laughs> okay, great. So do you guys have some questions? Uh, David will be walking around or passing yes. the microphone. Any questions? Maybe a hand if you uh, have well a question. The front. Yeah. Um, so, well, very, very interesting talks. Um, and it sort of uh, reminded me of when I came out of bakery school and went to university, and I was very excited about, well, I'm going to learn a lot, and then became very demotivated at some point because it was highly structurized and everything. And I sort of like hearing the fact that you guys are, I think, sort of creating activists uh, and people who are very motivated to learn but how are you also preparing them to deal with these kinds of contexts? Because I don't think they, they will all go into architecture and art departments. So how are you preparing them to deal with this kind of frustration to, like in higher education, where it's not the way that you're teaching it in your classrooms? Um, I'd like to say something short about that. Uh, the two concepts of push and pull um, I talked about, um, we find that there's knowledge in, um, that you gain in a pool context is narrative, more subjective, and the transfer is a problem. 
of that knowledge because it's in a context that you learn it and it's not always easy to get that across to another context in real life. So yes, it's very important to have the real life uh, context, but it's also important to look at it from a more abstract uh, point of view so that because that will make transfer more uh, likable uh, and make it more explicitable. Um, so I think a balance is really like important when you think about innovation uh, in education and creating more engaged uh, learning processes, but also taking care of uh, having it more, um, um, looking for a word again, um, for the anchored, help me out. <laughs> anchored. <laughs> and the Dutch understood. <laughs> um, I, I, I agree, I was gonna say the same thing about yeah. the idea of the traditional and the non-traditional kind of meeting somewhere in the middle, um, and that you're still teaching lots of those traditional skills. Um, I also can speak to it on the fact that I'm currently teaching test preparation, um, because we have standardized tasks coming up at the end of this month, mm -hmm. and despite the fact that my students are incredible activists who just sent letters to senators, they still have to write a dumb essay in yeah. um, a standardized test. And um, but I find actually that the mindsets that we create allow them to come at that from a more meaningful angle. So when we started preparation for the test, I said to the students, we have a new audience and they suck. Um, <laughs> they're terrible. I don't like them. You don't like them. They don't have your best interests in mind. They're, they see you as numbers, but they want something. And what we have to do in the next couple weeks is figure out what they want. Um, and so my yeah, but I, I think it's really important that they they learn that they learn to have the grip to do that. Yes. Because real life is going to be that's, that's exactly your challenge. Yes. Uh, yeah. Your question. Sorry. Yeah. And so I think yeah. you know, for my students, they came into it like, all right, this is a, another problem we have to solve. We're going to have to take a test. They're going to assess us against everyone who they're expecting us to be exactly like, even though we know we're different. How are we going? to beat that? How are we going to get past that? By the way, the word I was looking for was retention. <laughs> <laughs> are there any other questions? Any yes. Well, I'll come to you next. Uh, hi. First of all, I want to applaud you for, uh, for the way you approach uh, learners. Um, but I find in essence there's not much different with, uh, with Summerhill from decades ago. Um, but where there is a difference, I, what I found is a difference, is that you structure it far more, where in Summerhill uh, the students were let free to wander, to explore, to learn, and to ask for, for, for information. Um, especially in the, in the ICSO, it's, it's far more structured. Do you think that's needed to uh, reach the, the bigger population and not just uh, the singles who who really benefit from uh, from the the pool learning. 
Um, that's actually uh, going to be a, a quite a big challenge, I think. Um, we do reach schools that are trying to innovate uh, at this moment. Of course, we can't reach the other schools yet because we need uh, contexts that work along with us. But it's going to be a challenge to see when our schools now need a mind, a mind shift. That mind shift is going to be a bigger problem in traditional schools. Um, so there's a long way to go. But uh, XO struct giving structure to both approaches is the first step. And of course, it's a research project now. The tool is uh, in an MVP stadium, which means minimal viable product. Uh, we are looking for uh, someone who produces the tool and then look at it again as a box of research uh, um, and what what we can use of that to make it even better, uh, to make it more uh, likable for schools who work in a more traditional way, uh, to see the path to the other side. We're building the bridge from one side to the other one, uh, and we're not there yet. Yeah. yeah, I also think that some people just need at least some structure to get started, and there should be a flexibility in how structured and how flexible uh, it is. But I do think at this point, a lot of teachers and students, they still need like a, how can I start and how is it related to my, uh, my work and my classroom? So mm -hmm. I think at this point, to reach a broader group, that's an important thing. Maybe a final question? Yes, there was a hand here at the front. Okay. I had a short question as well. Um, how do you get parents on board? Because at one time you said like, if you're teaching 30, 13 to 14 year olds, parents are still very involved. And if the kids aren't so happy f uh, with, with how you're teaching, how do you do that? How do you get them, uh, get them on board? Um, so a lot of it is, uh, a lot, some of it is experience. Um, I've been teaching for long enough that I'm pretty capable of talking down a crazy parent. Um, but I think the, the results tend to speak for themselves. Um, I will say, like, despite the fact that I teach completely differently than what I'm expected to teach, my students get better test scores than students who are taught in a traditional way. Um, and often just that data speaks for itself. Um, and I think also just really explaining to parents that stuff that was at the beginning of my presentation, the idea of why those 21st century skills are important and the difference between the school that, the, the jobs that we were being trained for versus the jobs that children now are being trained for. I think like the understanding that, um, that jobs, like I'm training students right now for jobs that do not exist um, and that will require of them things that I can't even imagine. Um, and helping parents to understand that aspect and then to see, I think also just really tracking the growth that you're seeing in the students in a lot of the traditional ways you track growth in school is really helpful just because parents are able to see, like, even though instead of writing seven essays this year, my child wrote a speech and they wrote a podcast and they wrote a letter, they're able to see within that the growth in the writing skills. So I think being able to connect it again between, one, the future, where this is going for these children, so that the parents understand, like, this is really about preparing your child for a world that they are going to have to go into that you didn't have to go into. Um, and two, uh, 
being able to show in the traditional ways kind of the results that you get is really helpful. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you very much for the, for the interesting uh, answers. And also thank you to the audi audience for being here and being interested in this, uh, in this topic. <laughs> also, thank you for all the people who were standing at the marketplace and they were already showing some projects that uh, were, were connecting design thinking and uh, education. We would like you to invite you to the, um, the room we were before and just please enjoy a final drink and uh, talk to each other and talk to the speakers here as well to ask them for some uh, extra questions. Thank you. Thank you. The Service Design Podcast was brought to you by the Service Design Network and Night Moves. For more information, previous episodes, or to join the conversation, please visit servicedesignpodcast.com. For more information about the Service Design Network, visit service-design-network.org. And for Night Moves, visit nightmoves.be. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to this podcast. The intro and outro music is from If the Stars Grow Dim Tonight by Hydrogen C, featuring I Will, I Swear. Until next time.